Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 28. We're starting to read there, and if you follow along after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So we had read all about, in Acts 17, his ministry to the Athenians and all the wonderful truths that we understood from there. Now he is in the city of Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. Remember what we've talked about in terms of households, and we want to see communities, groups, households coming to the Lord. So his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off as Sanchrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is really the third missionary journey. We've read about the first, the second, now here Paul is going on the third missionary journey. Meanwhile, 
A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, this is the same place that Paul had faced opposition and he was before the proconsul Gallio, and you know, Gallio didn't want anything to do with it, so now it's paving the way for Apollos to come in there. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul goes from Athens to Corinth, and as was his custom, goes to the synagogue. When the people there opposed him, he went to the Gentiles. But we see that Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household and others from the synagogue believed in the Lord. And so Paul stays in Corinth for at least 18 months since the Lord spoke to him directly to stay there and to teach. This is a longer period than some of these other places that he's been where he would have to flee or he would establish the church, do something, and then he would have to leave. But here, during Paul's 18 months in Corinth, this is when he wrote letters to the believers in Thessalonica, where he had just been previously, and where he had established that local gathering, that local church of new believers. And we know of those letters, those epistles, as 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Right? Paul would have written those letters to reinforce what he had taught them, to correct any wrong beliefs or practices, and to encourage the new believers. That's the primary focus of all of Paul's epistles, his letters to the churches. In a very similar way, after Paul leaves Corinth, so he's now in Corinth for these 18 months, when he leaves from Corinth and he goes to Ephesus, he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. And so when you read through 1 Corinthians in particular, you clearly see that Paul is reinforcing what he taught the people in Corinth about church leadership, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, conduct in the church, orderly worship, love, and marriage. And he also brings a sharp rebuke against an act of sexual immorality that was there in the Corinthian church. So we see all of that in 1 Corinthians. And he encourages the believers to do what is right and to persevere in the faith. So I encourage you, read through those books, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in particular, even as you're reading Acts 18, because 1 and 2 Corinthians is describing in greater detail what is summarized in Acts 18. And in all his teaching and dialogue in Corinth, one of the most important truths Paul taught the Corinthians was that of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out some of the most important implications about the resurrection. And that's where I want to turn our attention this morning. So go to 1 Corinthians 15, 
and starting in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, these folks that he's with for these 18 months. They're just getting established. Now he's writing to them. And he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testi testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Go down in the chapter to verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What a glorious passage. What a wonderful set of truths that are expressed in the, you know, I've, I've, as I've mentioned before, all you've got to do is just read aloud the word of God, wonderfully stated, wonderfully articulated, glorious truths. But there are two points I want to make about the resurrection based on what we just read. And the first one is this. Our gospel message must include the reference to the resurrection. Our gospel message has to talk about, has to speak about the resurrection. Paul makes it clear that the gospel message, the good news about Jesus, is that Jesus came into the world as a man, that he established himself as the way, the truth, and the life, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to the disciples and more than 500 people after he was resurrected. The good news that we share with people is not just that Jesus was a good man who taught good things and exemplified how to live a good life. The good news about Jesus is that he took the penalty. He paid the price for our sins. He reconciled us to God. Even as sin and death entered the world through one man, through Adam, reconciliation and life came to the world through one man, Jesus. But our gospel message doesn't just stop there. The good news about Jesus is that he didn't just die for our sins, he also broke the power of death. Jesus was not just fully man, so that he could bear the penalty of sin on behalf of all humanity. He was also fully God, so that he could triumph over sin and death for the benefit of all humanity. We lay claim to life after death. We lay claim to eternal life only because death has been defeated. The gospel message the story of Jesus, the description of what Christianity is and what Christians believe, that would be incomplete without the resurrection. If everything stopped at the cross, we would have a glorious message to share, but the claim of the word of God would be incomplete without the resurrection. And so that means that our faith is based, is entirely based, is dependent on the resurrection. Paul makes this point that if we didn't believe in the resurrection, then our faith would be futile. If we claim to be Christians, those who believe in Jesus, but don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, then as Paul says, we are of all people most 
to be pitied. Why? You know, you look at your life, no matter what's going on in your circumstances, and you say, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. And you know, it's good to sit in this sanctuary on a beautiful spring day and just, I'm doing pretty well. Why would Paul say, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you are of most, of all people, not just most, all people, to be pitied. Why? Because if the resurrection is not true, we would have given our lives for a lie. You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Jesus himself was lying when he said in Mark 8, 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all the scriptures that foretold his resurrection were lies. If the scriptures are lies, then our preaching is useless. If our preaching is useless, then our practices, our institutions, our giving, our sacrifices, our lives are a waste. So why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Why can we be confident that Paul and others were willing to give their lives for the truth and not a lie? Well, there are a few different reasons you can go through and talk about. And I'm going to highlight just four. You, if you continue, if you investigate and look this up and understand this, there's all sorts of things. In fact, there are number of people who set out to prove that Jesus never rose from the dead. Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, others who have written all these books and, you know, they're based on their investigation. And they went, they were hell-bent on saying Jesus did not rise from the dead. But through their investigation and assessments finally ended up at the conclusion that he did rise from the dead and ended up believing in Jesus. So I'm not even going through that whole range of sort of examples and analysis and all of that investigation, I want to highlight four things for you, four reasons for why we believe, why we can be confident that Jesus did rise from the dead. And it's primarily from these scriptures that we just read. The first reason to believe is because of the eyewitness accounts. A large number of people saw and interacted with Jesus after the resurrection. It's not one or two people. It's not, you know, a, a limited sort of testimony. It's not eyewitnesses. Even when you have a massive event that takes place, you know, and the police are investigating or whatever else, you're glad to see if you have 10, maybe 20 eyewitnesses, right? Here you have more than 500 people who had interacted with Jesus. They saw in his resurrected body the marks of the crucifixion. They heard him speak and watched him eat. They saw him ascend to heaven. So all of these people, these eyewitnesses to Jesus after his resurrection, they were either delusional or they were part of an extremely well-planned and well-executed conspiracy or they were telling the truth. The second reason to believe is because the dead body of Jesus could not be found. His grave 
the tomb was readily accessible. It was right there. It wasn't hidden somewhere. If, as the Jewish leaders claimed, the disciples had overpowered the guards, rolled away the stone, and they had you know, entered the tomb and stolen the body of Jesus so that they could claim that he was alive, then the authorities could have searched the city, they could have gone after those disciples, they could have made them talk, and they could have done something to disprove this claim of the disciples. It was in the interests of both the Roman and the Jewish leaders to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Because that was the claim that Jesus made. That was the claim that Jesus was making to show that he was God. That he had power over death. That he would rise from the dead. That was the claim that the disciples were now making after the resurrection. So if there was any way to just squash this whole thing and put it to bed, it would have been to just say, oh, no, here's the body. No such thing. And be done with it. Right? But they could not, and they were not able to provide or to... To, to show that Jesus, in fact, did not rise from the dead, that they couldn't bring his body. And, and there was this, this theory, there was this statement, and even today, you will find that there are groups of people who say that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, right? And that he swooned or something else happened and then they hit him and then he came back and so on. Or that Jesus died but then somebody else took his place. They were pretending. They, they just, you know, they acted like it was Jesus. And so then people thought that he had been resurrected from the dead. And so you, let's imagine that the disciples, you know, they, they, they stole the body. He was dead. But somebody else pretended to be Jesus. Well, the claim of Jesus' resurrection was not made one year after the fact. It wasn't made, you know, some... Ten years after the fact, well, I think Jesus actually came back to life. There was nothing like that. It was just a few days after his death. And the claim that was being made that Jesus was alive was being made in the very city that Jesus had been in, that he had been crucified in, and that he had been buried in, that he had been put into the tomb. So people knew what he looked like. People knew what he sounded like. People knew how he behaved. So if you had to have somebody pretending to be Jesus and being able to fool all these people, that was pretty good acting. So there wasn't enough anywhere in all of these circumstances to prove or to show that Jesus, in fact, was dead and had remained dead. They couldn't find the body. They couldn't do these things. So the eyewitness accounts and then nobody. The third reason to believe is because of how the lives of those who encountered the risen Lord were completely transformed. The cowardly disciples, oh, they, they have become bold and courageous. Those who tried to save their own lives were now willing to give their lives. Those who fled in fear now were living in faith. Those like Paul, who were opposed to Jesus, now became his greatest defenders. Clearly, something happened to change their minds and their lives. In Acts, all the way from chapter 1 through 17, we've been seeing that it was when the disciples, Paul and others, started to talk about the resurrection of Jesus that people would oppose them. 
You know, when they talked about what they believed and they said, ah, strange things. But when they would talk about the resurrection, people said, oh, we don't want to hear about this. We don't believe this. We don't accept this. So, not only are they being bold enough to talk about this, but when they started to talk about it, when they had opposition to what they were saying, they could have just conveniently dropped this part of their message. They could have said, no, 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 we'll just drop this thing and talk about, not talk about the resurrection because then we'll get a better audience. But they insist on talking about the resurrection. They insist on saying Jesus was raised from the dead because they were convinced that that rising from the dead, that resurrection of the Lord was the crux of their message. And so without compromise, they kept insisting on this statement, on this truth. Jesus has been raised from the dead. So you see the eyewitnesses, there's no body, and these men's lives are transformed. Clearly, there's something that they feel is worth giving their life to now. And they're willing to do everything for the sake of this truth, that Jesus is alive. It better be a, a pretty convincing truth for you to do this. And it's not 2,000 years after the fact that where I would say to you, hey, Jesus is alive, and you say, well, maybe, maybe not. This is days later. This is just in a short period of time where people who are there would know exactly what was going on. That you're saying, yep, this is what it is. Jesus is alive. And then a fourth reason to believe is because the interactions with Jesus weren't just restricted to the eyewitnesses in the first century. All through modern history, all through these past 2,000 years, people have encountered the living Messiah. All over the world, God burns in our hearts and the Word of God the declaration of the Word of God, the hearing of the Word of God, when we receive the Word of God, it burns in our hearts just as it did in the hearts of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus was resurrected and he opens the scriptures to them. And just as Jesus spoke to them, he speaks to us. And when we hear this word of God, it burns in our hearts just as it did for them. And we say, oh, this is truth. This word is living. It is active. It is the very words of Jesus spoken to us directly. This is not a dead leader of some movement. This is a living God who continues to speak to us with power and with authority. And all around us are people that testify that Jesus is alive because they are experiencing him in their lives daily. This is not a dead God, a dead man, a past story, something that was true for the first century. No. Jesus is alive and well and speaking and directly involved in our lives and today. So it's because of that we can say, oh, I, I believe. I can be confident. I know that Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, the question before us is not whether we can prove or disprove that Jesus was raised from the dead. The real question, the real question before us is, would you take a step of faith 
to believe in Jesus, who said of himself in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of Resurrection Sunday. That Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who has been raised from the dead, as the scriptures said. I am the one that was raised from the dead, as I told you I would be. Do you believe this? If you believe this, even though you die a natural death in the earth, you will live eternally with me. That's the power of the resurrection. That's why it's significant. That's why it's so wonderfully important for us and so critically important for us to continue to share the resurrection story. It's not just an opportunity to celebrate once a year. It is an opportunity for us to speak this and to declare this and to make this the central point of who we are as children of God. And so the question then is, how do you respond? And this morning, our point of response and our point of application is similar because we want to respond and apply by believing these truths about Jesus. And when I say believe, I don't mean just giving some mental assent, not saying, yeah, 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 that sounds good, but to accept, to let it transform our life, to live according to these truths, to let these truths be manifest in such a way in our lives, to let it overflow from us in such a way that when we encounter somebody else, we can't help but tell them about the risen Lord. That's the reason that we want to respond by applying and apply by believing in Jesus. You see, the first section of Acts 18, what we read in verses 1 through 23, this account of Paul and what he's doing and so on, it gets us to the powerful truth of the resurrection of Jesus. But the last section of Acts 18, verses 24 through 28, that provides a powerful incentive and example for us for being humbly willing to learn the truth, including about the resurrection, and to grow in the relationship with Jesus. So in those verses, verses 24 through 28, we're reading about Apollos. And verse 25 tells us that Apollos was a learned man, a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He was teaching about Jesus, but he was missing some important truths. He knew things partially. And in verse 26, it says that Priscilla and Aquila explained the way of God more adequately to him, more fully, to help him understand, to fill in those gaps, to help him to see, okay, this is what you've been holding on to. These are the traditions. These are the things. These are the, this is the knowledge that you've had so far, but here is what will help you to make that fuller to enhance it, to complete it. The character, the humility, the patience, and the teachability, the willingness to be taught by Apollos, all of those characteristics in Apollos, 
it is very apparent that he not only listened, but that when he got to Achaia, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. And in Achaia, he vigorously refutes the Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Here was a man who demonstrated, who is setting an example for us, that when our knowledge, when our understanding is incomplete, if we will yield, if we will listen, if we will receive, then the Lord can bring us into a fuller understanding of his word. As we learn from Acts 17, God overlooks our ignorance up until a certain point. But now, now we, like Apollos, when we're hearing the full truth about Jesus, when our knowledge is being enhanced, now we need to respond. We respond and apply by believing in Jesus. So for everyone listening to this message today, for everyone listening to this message today who believes, who already believes in this full gospel message of Jesus, you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You believe what he did in the account of salvation as Paul lays it out. This is what the, this is the gospel we preach to you. When you, if you believe all of those truths, then I want to encourage you to spend time with the living Lord and Master of your life. You know this Jesus, now spend time with him. Listen to him. Learn, grow, serve, fulfill his purpose, walk in his ways, press him. But for everyone listening to this message, who believes in some parts of the gospel message, some truths about Jesus, but you're having a hard time believing that he rose from the dead or that he cares about you. Or it may be that you do believe in the resurrection, but there are other truth claims in the Bible. There are other truth claims that Jesus made or that people tell you that this is what it means. And you're struggling with that. You're not sure how to come to grips with it. You're not sure how to reconcile it. I want to challenge you that in light of this word that I'm speaking with you today, that what I'm sharing with you today, I want to challenge you that you ask this living Lord for wisdom. That you say to him, Lord, if you are true, if you are truly living, if you have truly resurrected from the dead, in spite of my doubts and uncertainties, I ask you to reveal yourself. I'm asking you for your wisdom. I'm asking you to make these truths known to me. I'm asking for the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit who would teach us and guide us into all truth. Lord, give me that. And for everyone listening to this message today who has never believed in Jesus, it's not a partial Understanding, it's not a partial belief. It's not that you think that it may be true. It's not that you're struggling with doubts or uncertainties. You simply haven't believed. You don't know Jesus, the Messiah. I want to ask you today that you respond to Jesus' own invitation. And the questions that come to you, those who 
never had an opportunity to believe in Jesus? These are the questions that you have to be willing to consider. And, then, and these are the questions that you may be thinking about. First, would you put your trust in Him? Would you put your trust in Jesus? Because guess what? Jesus is trustworthy. He's worthy of you putting your trust in Him. He doesn't let you down. He doesn't lie. He's not a man, but He is God. And would you put your trust in Him to know that He will respond to your concerns, to your questions? Next, will you surrender your heart to Him? The very core of who you are, your being, would you surrender it to Him? And Jesus, the wonderful heart surgeon, He is so kind and gentle that in all of His love, in the kindest and most gracious way that He can, with all mercy, he will take your old heart and give you a new heart. That's the promise of the Word of God. Would you be willing to trust? Would you be willing to surrender your heart to Him? Would you be willing to accept Him as your Savior? Because the Word of God says, and Jesus' promise is this, that because of what He did on the cross, He will wash you clean of all your sins. He makes you white as snow. He cleanses you. He doesn't just take your heart, your old heart, and give you a new heart and leave you with all of those things that are there. We even sang about it this morning. He takes all those things that are there and cleans it up, washes it, makes you as if you had never done them. And then the question is, will you receive him as your Lord? Because you know, when you do, when you say, Lord, I submit to you, I yield to you, I want you to be Lord of my life, not just my Savior, not just the one who has you know, taken away my anxious thoughts, not just the one who has done these particular things for me, but I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to live my life daily. Make my decisions, do, do the things that I'm going about every day, raise my children, love my spouse. I want to do all of these things, Lord, with your lordship over me. Well, the Lord will fill you with his spirit, with his power, and will enable you to live a life of obedience. And the question is, will you join Will you join with others who call on the name of the Lord? Because the Bible says, and what Jesus consistently was emphasizing, is that when he calls us to himself, he calls us to become part of the body of Christ. He calls us to unity in that fellowship, in that communion. And he says, because of this, you are no longer isolated somewhere doing something. But you are members of one body. And together with one another, you will be strengthened. You will have life. And in this unity, you will be able to live and move and have your being. People praying for you. People praying with you. People encouraging you. People helping you to not go to the right or to the left. 
but to stay on the path that the Lord has called you to. People standing with you. Will you join with others who call on the name of the Lord? And then, will you believe? Will you believe in the truths of Jesus, including the truth of the resurrection? Not just for this world, but for that which is to come. Because when you stand in these truths, when you say, Lord, this is who you are and this is what you've done for me, I believe it. Then this is not just about this world because then we would just, as Paul says, you know, we could have a pity party every Sunday. Come together and say, oh, well, you know, everything is terrible, everything is awful, but oh, anyway, it's good to see you. But no, we come together every Sunday and we come together on Resurrection Sunday and we say, oh, what a joy, what a delight. What encouragement. Oh, you're going through a tough time. What a joy that through it all, our Lord is with us. And one day we will be with him in eternity. Would you believe in all the truths of Jesus, including the fact that he has been resurrected? Because when you do, he leads you into all truth. He continues to lead and to guide and to direct. And he gives us eternal life. He's coming back. He's here and alive and with us and in our midst, but he's coming back physically. And all the world will see him. Those that had rejected him will know that he is indeed Messiah. You see, when we believe in Jesus, when we put our faith in him, when we know that we know that we know that the resurrected Lord is resurrecting us, giving us life now and preparing us for life eternal, then we can confidently declare our faith is not futile. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, you are such a good God to us that you have given us life and given it to us abundantly. And Lord, on this wonderful Resurrection Sunday, when we celebrate what you did for us, Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you have risen from the dead. I thank you, Lord, that death could not hold you. Let, Lord, the grave has no victory over you. Lord, sin and grave and death and everything have been laid bare, have been, Lord, destructed. Lord God, we thank you that you rose from the dead so that now we can have life. And this, this day, Lord, our hearts are full of joy and thanksgiving. We rejoice in you, Lord. We worship you. Father, I pray that for every one of us here today, for those of us who believe, oh Lord God, that we would be freshly encouraged and strengthened and enriched and Lord, refreshed that you are a living, a living God and that we can press into you and have this intimate relationship with you. Lord, for those, Lord, who are having some doubts today, Lord, today, let, this, let today be the day when they turn to you and receive your truths. And Lord, for those who do not know you, 
Lord, for those who have not come to you, for those who are unaware or who may have been opposing your word to them, Lord, let today be the day. Let this Resurrection Sunday be a day of great rejoicing. Lord, let anybody who's listening to this message even later and who would yield, who would submit, who would give their lives to Jesus and say, Lord God, you come and you be the Lord and the Messiah of my life. Oh Lord God, that's our greatest joy. Oh Lord God, that would resonate with heaven. That Lord, we rejoice that Lord, someone has come to believe in Jesus. We rejoice in everyone that comes to believe in Jesus. So Lord, let this day of celebration be indeed one in which every single person hearing this, Lord, would rejoice, would celebrate, would be joined together into the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you, Lord, for how wonderfully, how wonderfully your word throughout the scriptures from start to finish speak to us about a risen Savior. Thank you, Lord for what you mean to us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.